Hello and welcome to the Modern Fairy Sightings Podcast, where we listen to people's fairy encounters. But take heed, we're not talking about winged tinkerbells here. These are real fairies, real encounters that took people like you and I by surprise. Stay a while and hear their stories. My name is Joe Hickey Hall and I'm a folklore researcher. Dear listener, I hope you're well. I'm feeling the blossoming of Beltane here in Britain. I'm very lucky to live within an hour's drive of Glastonbury, where I joined a procession last weekend to raise the maypole at Bushy Coombe, a part of Hillside overlooked by the magnificent tour itself. It is a fantastic event and one which I'll be returning to again next year. As a May Day baby, I always love that my birthday falls within this bountiful time of magical celebrations, and so it feels fitting to learn today that the podcast has now reached over 100,000 downloads, and our community has grown to 120 patrons. I am so grateful to all supporters of this project, without whom I would not be able to continue. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for sharing with me the sense of value that these stories provide to folks who have had similar experiences and need to know that they're not alone. You are never alone, wherever you are, whatever your situation. If you would like to join our community and support the show, please find us on Patreon. We also have some tea ceremony workshops coming up, one of them next week and another later on in May. I've recently posted a video of the Beltane procession in Glastonbury, and there are many other exclusive bonus episodes there. This episode is, of course, my discussion with Professor Ronald Hutton. I am very grateful to him for agreeing to discuss his personal experience with what he felt may have been Eliane and she, one of the most famous reported historical encounters of young men disappearing into the fairy realm is that of Thomas the Rhymer. Similar to modern alien abduction accounts, and like the fairy encounters that you hear here on this podcast, those that meet the fae are often forever changed afterwards in some way. In Ronald's case, he went on to become an internationally renowned expert in paganism studies, although perhaps this was always his destiny, regardless. In Thomas the Rhymer's case, he returned with the gift of prophecy and the inability to tell a lie. This interests me. In our time of great transition at the moment, I'm noticing that many of us are recognising that they are finding it much harder to wear a figurative mask and unquestionably just take part in situations that don't resonate with who they truly are. Are you experiencing this awareness? To many, it's becoming more and more important to live their life in a meaningful way, in accordance with their personal values, to be their true, authentic selves 100% of the time. They can no longer hide who they are, or compromise themselves in order to fit someone else's idea of what or whom they should be. They are, therefore, rearranging their lives to place themselves in situations where they can feel fully accepted and recognised for their own individual identity. Is this what it feels like in the other realm? No room for inauthenticity and meaningless distractions. If so, perhaps we are indeed creeping closer to the other world. Or, perhaps this new Aquarian age we are entering into is aligned with these same values. I hope so. There is a whole lot of nonsense in the world that suddenly feels completely meaningless. 
we are becoming aware that the truth refuses to be ignored as part of a process of enlightenment, individually and collectively. Thanks very much to Ronald for sharing his thoughts, both academic and personal. I hope you enjoy this chat. Please do share on with those who may be interested. Please also subscribe and leave a review if you can. I hope you feel free to be your true selves. Beltane is the perfect time to step through that threshold. We do not know what awaits us on the other side, but we are hopeful and it would be wise to remain curious. Excited to be here with Professor Ronald Hutton, Professor of History at the University of Bristol and Professor of Divinity at Gresham College. Ronald is very well known, of course, very well respected academic as a, a, an expert in the history of religion and magic. You are a fellow of the British Academy and the Royal Historical Society as well as the Society of Antiquaries and the Learned Society of Wales. So keeping very busy and having written 18 books on these sorts of subjects. So thanks so much for joining me because your work has inspired me right from the very beginning in terms of my academic pursuits and and, and having... Having started the podcast and started to look at the experiential stuff, um, it's really lovely to kind of loop back round and have a chat with you about the literature. So thank you. Thank you. I remember watching one of the lectures that you gave um, in the Isle of Man and you talked about your own experience. So, you know, we'll we'll get to that um, in a moment. But I'd really like to know what your thoughts are on modern encounters that are reported at the moment, because they seem to be coming in, you know, fairly regularly, the the sort of frequency um, that seems to be building. What are your thoughts on on this? Well, you are the expert (laughs) on uh, modern and contemporary encounters. I can compare them more with traditional fairy lore, going back to uh, the Middle Ages. It was really in the 12th, 13th centuries, around 1100 to 1300, that uh, scholars first began collecting stories of encounters with fairy-like beings, and they had no idea what to make of them. They had no framework to put round them. And so they just kept collecting them. So in many ways, these early encounters have that same kind of immediate and uh, unsystematic sense to them. In other words, people running into things they didn't really understand, but could often describe vividly. So there is a continuity of experience. Mm. That's very true. I mean... When we look at the literature, a lot of it, well, I suppose some of it in the, the folklore, 
Um, there are some encounters, collected encounters there, of course, and some of them, of course, then tie into folklore as well. And often in the literature, we get a sense of, you know, some, some thrilling aspects to these meetings, um, some quite sort of dramatic effects. And I think with the modern encounters, you do get that too. You get people having these incredible experiences, but a lot of the time, they are just experiences that might happen in nature. Can you point towards aspects of the literature that reflect that too? Certainly I can. The big division is between reports of uh, actual encounters by specific people and stories told about fairies uh, in folklore, Mm -hmm. stories told around the fire traditional tales. In the traditional tales, the stories as entertainment or maybe survival tactics, the encounters are significant and they're usually life-changing. The person ends up dead or rich or with the gift of prophecy or with other uh, superhuman powers. In the Stories of actual fairy encounters, people who are known to those who made the records, they're far more mundane. They're uh, saying, you know, one moment uh, I was walking along this road and I saw the strange little man, then the strange little man wasn't there. And that's it. You know, there, there are no consequences for the person other than uh, a, a very puzzling encounter. So I think both sides of uh, what you're recording now are reflected in the different sources. Welcome to the Alchemy of Natural Healing. I'm your host, Laurel Dewey. True healing is an alchemical process, meaning it must transform you on all levels, body, mind, and spirit. What affects one affects all three. True healing is one of the hardest journeys you'll ever travel, but it's one of the most rewarding and fulfilling when you get to meet yourself for the first time. If you're ready to take that journey, let's get started. I only wish I was there to uh, to ask those people, you know, <laughs> all the questions that I'd love to know. And I wonder if they ever, you know, did talk about it to their families. It's it's very interesting. And so your own relationship with uh, the uh, fairies then, can you talk a little bit about, you know, the experience that you had? Was that your first introduction to the area? I had uh, a lot of knowledge of traditional fairy lore. Uh, before uh, I had the encounter which I'm about to describe. And indeed, I situated my interpretation of that encounter. I hung a whole lot of dressing around it based on my knowledge of fairy lore. And in fact, my experience itself may have had nothing to do with that. I'll provide different options at the end of the story. The story is from 1985, when I was at the beginning of my 30s. I'd just uh, broken up with uh, uh, a beloved and long-term girlfriend and was rather broken-hearted. 
Um, so I went on the road as a tour guide for most of the summer. And uh, I, I felt myself very detached from everything uh, because of my emotional state. And I quite liked the idea of encountering fairy beings and vanishing with them into their world for a while, like Thomas the Rhymer. And so I uh, spent a certain amount of time sitting under flowering hawthorn trees and in uh, places like the Eildon Hills of Scotland, where Thomas the Rhymer met the Queen of the Fairies. Uh, nothing happened. And then in July of that year, I was with a tour group on the Ring of Kerry in the west of Ireland. And that is country which, uh, among a few other places, is associated with a particularly charismatic type of fairy called the Lanon Shi in Irish, Lanon Shi and Manx, which is also in the Isle of Man. And she attracted me because she tended to turn up at night and accost young men. And uh, a lot of the time she uh, simply blighted them so they died. Uh, if she liked them, then they still lived rather short lives, but they're quite everlasting fame and uh, uh, a very exciting life because they were blessed with extreme talent in the performing arts as a musician or a poet or a performer. And put like that, she really did seem rather attractive to me. The group I had was unusually staid and middle-aged. Normally I took university students and their staff, or school students, and they went to bed early. So round about nine o'clock I was at a loose end, and it was July. And so I went to the lady at the reception desk, who was uh, young, and asked her where the nearest pub was. And she said it was about three miles along the coast road in a place called Derry Name. And so uh, I brightened up at that and decided to make the walk. And I looked at the evening outside and it was dead still. There was a kind of mist around the horizon, very quiet, almost brooding. And I turned round to the young woman behind the desk who may have been from Dublin for all I knew or some area that have no knowledge of the Lanon Shi. And I said, this looks like a night in which the Lanon Shi will be abroad. And she looked me straight in the eye and said, oh yes, tonight she will be walking. And I said, perhaps I shall meet her. And she said, in that case, perhaps you will never come back. And uh, I smiled gaily at her and made the walk. It was an easy three miles along this twisty, winding coast road, still broad daylight. And I arrived at Derry Main. The pub was everything I could have wished for with good conversation and music. And the moment I walked in, I ran straight into an incredibly intelligent and interesting man from Dublin who was a filmmaker and an academic. And he and I hit it off immediately. We are, in fact, still friends to this day. So I just passed the evening with no sense of time running away. I had uh, a, a modest but significant amount to drink of the local stout. And then past midnight, the pub was still in full swing. 
I'd been expecting it to close sometime and realised that it wasn't going to. So I bid all my new friends farewell and stepped outside and had a shock because a dense fog had settled. And there were a few street lights in the village, but absolutely nothing beyond that. And once I reached the end of the village, I was in complete darkness. The fog was so thick that, and the darkness so absolute that if I waved a hand in front of my nose, I couldn't see it. And I realised I now had three terrifying miles in front of me because there were no fences to the road. And there were sea cliffs and there were bogs and there were rocks. And I couldn't see the road at all. I was only aware that I was still on it when I wasn't, when suddenly my foot went squelch or went off into empty air uh, or hit a boulder. And so in this unpleasant way, I made a very slow progress along. And then the night just no longer seemed to be merely dark and foggy. It actually began to feel creepy. And I told myself, this is uh, the obvious thing that my imagination is going to do to me. But at that moment, I remembered the Lanorn she, and it occurred to me for the first time that the people who believed in her did not regard her as a good thing. Mm. They regarded her as a terrifying and destructive being. And I felt a great deal less comfortable and uh, not at all cocky after that. And then the worst thing was that about halfway along the distance, it seemed to me that I heard two sets of footfalls on the road because I could hear the sound of my boots all the way ringing against the tarmac surface. And suddenly another pair of footfalls began to my left inland, not far away, and apparently on the road also which weren't in step with mine. And I then stopped, and after a second or so more, the other feet stopped as well, and there was dead silence. And I thought the only interpretation of this, since what I was hearing was not the clip-clop of hooves, it was the thump of human feet, there's somebody else standing a few feet away from me on this road in pitch darkness and saying nothing and they've emerged from the countryside. Uh, this is bizarre. And I knew that what I'm supposed to do is stammer, hello, is there anybody there? But I, I was so sick of those horror movies in which um, a killer appears with an axe and the heroine runs screaming upstairs instead of out the front door. And I was determined, if somebody was going to be standing there silently looking at me, possibly winding me up, I was not going to be the one who gave. Uh, and if there was anybody dangerous out there, I didn't want to give away my exact position. Mm -hmm. And so I remained absolutely silent. And there was absolute silence. And so after a bit, I slowly and quietly began walking again. And nothing more happened. No strange sounds. And after another mile and a half, I saw the lights of the hotel swim hazily into view and stumbled through the front door with my late key and fell into bed. And that was it. And it's all I can report. It's just one thing that makes me add a further dimension to the tale. And that is that many years later, when I went back to more systematic research into fairy lore, 
I realise that the Lanorn she always did a particular thing, and that is she appeared to lone young men on lonely roads at night as a beautiful woman and walked alongside them in silence. And if they spoke to her, they fell under her power. But if they remained silent, then she had no power over them and vanished shortly afterwards. So there are a number of different ways you can read my story, and I would expect different people to adopt one or another of those. One is to imagine that some farmer of livestock kept out late with uh, his beasts had come out of uh, the hill pastures onto the road following a, a track and stepped onto the road and then walked alongside me and uh, got home later that night in a fright saying that uh, he had been walking along the road and suddenly these bizarre feet appeared out of nowhere and then stopped and there was this silence and so he wondered if the Lanorn she had appeared to him. Uh, but either way it was terrifying. Uh, second is uh, a more extreme reading of that is that there were no footfalls. It was simply my overwrought imagination playing tricks on me, which is possible, though I don't have that kind of imagination and nothing like that has ever actually happened to me. Mm. Been proven. Or the third interpretation is that that night I played my part in an absolutely classic fairy tale. So it is up to those hearing this to make what they like of what I record. Very interesting. Thank you. Did you um, ever ask or mention to the receptionist about your experience? No, because uh, she wasn't there in the morning. Mm. She was on night duty yeah. and had been replaced by the time that I came down for breakfast. And check out. Mm. Otherwise, uh, we would certainly have had a conversation. Yes. And in those moments when you heard the footsteps, what did you imagine it was? I imagined that there was a real person there, I mean, a, another human being, in which case their behaviour was bizarre because I thought almost anybody would call out hello. Yeah because they wouldn't expect to meet a, another person on the road. And also the Irish, particularly the rural Irish of the West, are so considerate and friendly. Yeah. Uh, they'd automatically want to help anybody on the road. So this behaviour of just walking insouciantly alongside me and then stopping just after I did and saying nothing was bizarre. Mm. It sounds like you had... Um a sense of them, that there was a point where, you know, you became very unnerved before the steps even happened. I wouldn't say that I was unnerved. I was certainly unnerved about the landscape mm. uh, because it was uh, urgently physically dangerous. Yeah. Uh, I, I wasn't really afraid of anything superhuman or supernatural. It just began to occur to me that in a landscape that dangerous, uh, the stories about superhuman beings take on a whole new dimension. Uh, they are not encounters generally with pleasant beings no, who have your best interests at heart. Sounds like there's a lot of liminal aspects to it as well, with the you know the squishy, watery 
surface between kind of uh, water and land and then the mist and the hours that was taking place, you know, um, from one day to the next, you might say. Lots of different aspects to it. It sounds like from your own description that, you know, there was you were at a time in your life where you just want to step into something. It's almost like sometimes in your life you feel you're just ready to step into an abyss and go with it. Yes, I was certainly ready to step into another world. Mm. But after that night, I completely lost my interest in uh, fairyland and uh, decided I had to settle with remaking my own human life without stepping into anybody's legend. Yeah. I did. Mm. Well, you certainly did. Did you ever think about that that being when you when you read about it later and 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 it kind of hit you the potential let's say if if you want to sort of go along with the the idea that that is what may have happened on some level did you ever imagine what or who their presence might have been or did you try not to think about that i imagined constantly uh, what it might have been, but of course I had no data. No, no. Just a, a really rather odd experience mm. in a really rather odd place. Yeah. Have you ever met anybody else who who experienced anything no. similar? And uh, I never met anybody anywhere in the Lanon Shee's range uh, who had a, an encounter or a parent encounter like that. Mm. I just had uh, an oh-wow moment in the National Library, the Isle of Man, uh, which is where I came upon the most extensive amount of literature about the Lanon Sheen. Mm. So what did you learn from that literature? Well, until now, uh, until then, and through the time of um, my work that summer, uh, the amount I knew about the Lanon Shi could be grouped into a few sentences, even if they were very colourful sentences, and I summed them up to you. Yes. But there were chapters and chapters, pages and pages, on her various different recorded appearances to particularly young men uh, in the, uh, the Manx Library. And uh, it all drove the same lesson home, uh, which is the one that I've described. Uh, you keep mum, you're okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a funny thing, isn't it? You know, you're talking about some people may understand this in different ways. And of course, for me, I I, I love hearing these stories, particularly just first-hand stories and what it was what it felt like for for the person to experience those kind of encounters uh and as you say you know some people might just decide that there's a very rational explanation for it and there are there often are just very rational explanations things and i think that if we look at other cultures aside from from uh britain um Perhaps some societies and cultures are more open to where they they might feel that the first step would be some kind of supernatural explanation. How do you think that British people react? Because it seems sometimes that we are 
less open to the idea of fairies being real or that these supernatural beings actually having some kind of impact on our lives it, it it almost just seems like a very sort of you know a very old and outdated way in which to relate to the world what do you think it is I don't know do in the first place I don't know whether you would agree with that yeah how do you how do you feel that the, the, the British public and our society relates to these tales and experiences I think that every single traditional human society has believed in uh, a world around them teeming with spirits, whatever names they give them, uh, which spirits often communicate with people in the beliefs of these societies. Our modern Western complex of societies is therefore very unusual and unique in uh, refusing to credit such stories, at least officially. And you see its point, uh, wanting to have absolute proof of anything that becomes a belief system. Although that does leave it free for anybody to believe what they like privately. It also means if people have strange encounters and want to discuss them uh, with knowledgeable people to try and understand what has gone on, they're either in danger of being mocked or of having their testimony appropriated and given a framework of interpretation that suits the belief system of the person concerned, neither of which are particularly helpful. The aspect of this which I find most troubling is not that of fairy encounters, but of people who see or hear what they regard as spirits quite regularly. Mm. And... In any civilization, any uh, culture before our own, there'd be some framework put round this which would explain it for the person. Uh, but now people who have this experience, and there's a very large minority of people in our society, as in every Western society, that does have this experience, these people are simply left adrift uh, and frequently wonder if they're mad. It's a very disempowering, a very destabilizing way in which to be. When what seems to be happening to them in many traditional societies is a skill, it's something which could be put to social use. And the common name which academics give to a person with that kind of experience who develops the skill is a shaman. Mm. But... Uh, there's no place for people with that experience in our society. And that, I think, is the most regrettable aspect of the situation. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think we, we do need to um, find, find a way to remedy that, for sure. Thanks. One other thing I was wondering about was um, if you kind of look back over time, you have the, the Reformation and then you have the Enlightenment. At these periods, there was a, a great interest in, in fairies. But then there seems to be at the moment a resurgence of interest in these sorts of encounters and supernatural, as you say, not, not just fairy encounters, but supernatural encounters, and including things like UFO, anomalous light encounters and all this, this sort of thing. But there seems to be a resurgence in that, a resurgence into the unknown. I'm not sure what it is about this time, but to me it seems like potentially 
the shift that we're going into, obviously, the, uh, the Reformation was a huge shift for us, uh, social, social and cultural shift. Again, in the Enlightenment, as we shifted from kind of one understanding to another, one belief to another, one understanding to another in terms of from religion to science, again, in Victorian, and now into a digital age. And I just wonder whether you think that perhaps in the future, historians will be like yourself and will be looking back on this time and seeing this as a particularly rich point in our cultural history that has you know, many of these tales in which to research in the way that we look back to those previous eras in history. It is a rich time at present culturally mm -hmm. and that's largely because we are turning uh, rapidly with no great sense of where we're going and what's going to be there into a multicultural, multi-faith, multi-ethnic society. And uh, this is a complete novelty. So we're becoming aware that a greater degree of relativism in listening to and reacting to people's view of the world or their accounts of experience is neither than we've had hitherto. And that's coupled with an altogether different phenomenon, which is that the growth of the sciences and technology from about 1800 to about 1950 uh, was so incredibly rapid that it was believed that science would explain everything by about the year 2000. And although technological change has speeded up, scientific discovery about the nature of the world has slowed down. And it seems fairly clear there's lots of things which we can't explain still. And so it's all been opened up once more. You put those two things together and it helps explain the cultural richness. The other epochs are a bit different. The Victorians had an immense interest in fairies and fairy stories, partly because of the huge new popularity of Shakespeare, uh, who became suddenly you know, the English playwright par excellence under the Victorians. And Midsummer Night's Dream inspired uh, a whole two generations of artists and writers. But also it's about urbanisation and industrialisation. The Victorians were the first great age of that. They were the period in which, for the first time, the British began mostly to live in cities and engage in commerce and industry, not agriculture. And so people felt terribly cut off from the countryside in which their forebears had lived since time immemorial, and a desire to understand it, to embrace its stories, to collect and perpetuate, and hence the interest in folklore. What happened before then is, is rather different, and we're only just starting to get the story out of the records. And that is that uh, until round about 1300, there was no common sense of a land, a kingdom, or a society for fairies. Mm. They're just different types of fairy-like beings a lot of whom couldn't be classified at all, who appeared to people or who were believed to exist. And then in the 14th century, the 1300s, the idea begins to take over of a fairy kingdom with uh, one or two monarchs in charge. And it's the fairy queen who emerges from 
the 1300s as the more interesting figure. And this, she first appears in elite literature and she comes out of French romances. But she really gets into the ordinary people and she really gets all over uh, Britain, including Wales and Scotland. So by around about 1440, everybody's heard of her. Gangs of poachers are calling themselves the Fairy Queen and her merry men. Confidence tricksters are taking money from people to introduce them to the Fairy Queen. Maniacs are claiming to be the King of the Fairies or to be best friends with the Fairy Queen. These are all utterly ordinary people. So uh, she's everywhere. And what happens in the Reformation, Renaissance period, the Shakespearean period, is just this intense new interest in fairies and the fairy kingdom just keeps on trucking. And we hear more about it after 1550, simply because the printing press and the uh, appearance of theatre has produced an explosion of uh, publications and of representations. And that's why there's much more evidence than before, but they're actually working on ideas that exploded a couple of hundred years before, Mm. and which die out by the end of the 17th century, by about 1700. Nobody's interested in the Fairy Queen anymore. Uh, It's just a fad of the previous few hundred years. So she goes out with maypole dancing and Morris dancing, things like that split into a few regional beliefs and customs, having been a nationwide craze for a couple of hundred years. Fascinating. How do you feel that we are finding more of an understanding then going forward with these encounters and looking at the literature itself and kind of making sense of it in these times? People always make sense of the present in terms of the past because we inherit this series of interpretive mechanisms, some of which are really very ancient, like the Bible for devout Christians and the Hebrew Bible for devout Jews, and some of which are more recent, developed in the last few hundred years. And uh, when we face phenomena, we preserve our sanity in most of us by uh, using these helpful inherited frameworks to explain things away or to come to terms with them. Now, of course, uh, those frameworks often carry an awful lot of baggage from previous societies, which we don't find that welcome in a multiracial society in which uh, women are given an equal role in public life and in opportunities, for example. So that's when the traditional tales start to be adapted and to be replaced. But it's a very long process. Classifying fairies is really pretty well impossible. Yeah. Uh, and it always has been. Uh, scholars first began trying to do it in the 12th century. As said, by 1200, quite a few had tried and they'd all failed. And uh, it still hasn't worked. Uh, There's no observer book of British fairies uh, because unlike uh, other physical phenomena, you can't take them back to a lab and study them. So records of fairies are 
encounters between human beings and phenomena or worlds which they really don't understand. Yes. And they're often brief. They're usually utterly unexpected. So nobody's ready with a camera or a notebook or a set of helpful reactions. Mm -hmm. And then they're gone. And trying to get any sense of the absolute identity of a being out of that is pretty well impossible. And when you look at traditional fairy lore, it's almost never firsthand. Fairy stories are stories recorded by people about things that have happened to others. Mm. And the others to whom they actually happened did not understand them themselves. And so uh, it's absolutely inevitable that really all the data that one would need to have a natural history of fairies is missing. Mm. That's it. And I entirely agree. It is very, very difficult to to classify fairies. And currently, um, I, with work that I'm doing, when I collect encounters, I'm referring to fairy experiences when I'm maybe talking about Sasquatch or, uh, you know, maybe even werewolves. I'm, I'm putting them into that mix just because I like to throw the net wide and, 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 get a sense of what people are experiencing. And I guess in a way, I call them, calling them, you know, fairy sightings and lumping them in, it's, it's almost harking back to that original meaning of fairy, F-A-I-E-R-I-E, fair, fairy, uh, which would have meant uh, an uncanny event or happening. Yes, uh, fairy is originally a verb to enchant, to disorder, to do, to mess things around magically. Mm -hmm. And so fairies are those things that do that kind of thing. Sure. It's, it's as, as vague, but as steeped in uh, excitement and fear as that. But there's also uh, a great deal of cultural context that matters here. Uh, the question of why the Irish and Hebridean and Highland Scots uh, take fairies so seriously, and uh, the English mostly don't, particularly in the lowlands and the southeast, really comes down to a question of whom you blame for bad luck. It's partly a question also of terrain, that the environment's so much harsher in uh, rural Ireland and Highland and Island Scotland, that any beings associated with it are likely to be scarier. Mm -hmm. But there's also a, a simple but immensely powerful distinction between the two groups of people over whom they blame for uncanny bad luck. Mm -hmm. Because across the globe, human beings find it very difficult to accept the idea that weird bits of luck are simply the result of fortune, random incidents. They, they do want an explanation. And there are three that traditional peoples tend to adopt. One is that they're caused by evil human beings, uh, the, the sort of being, in English, we would call a witch, using the term in a, an antagonistic and negative way. Another explanation is it's that it's the people who had the bad luck of annoyed ancestors. It's ghosts that are the culprit. But the third is land spirits. Mm. 
the fairies. And I'm pretty certain by now, having done a lot of research into just this area, that there is a considerable division between the Irish and the, the Gaelic Scots, who, when something goes wrong, blame fairies. And the Lowland Scots and the English, who, when something goes wrong, blame witches. Uh, the, the Welsh, incidentally, are on the Irish and Gaelic side, so we, we could actually revive the word Celtic to characterise that. And so when uh, the uh, average 17th century English commoner felt that they were cursed, they'd look around in their village for a neighbour whom they thought had been working evil magic on them. Mm. And uh, when somebody in rural islands or uh, the Outer Hebrides or the, the, the Ross and Cromarty Highlands uh, had the same experience, uh, they would immediately wonder how that annoyed the fairies and what to do to propitiate them. And you can actually see glaring examples of uh, culture clash. Uh, the murder or the manslaughter of Bridget Cleary is one of the most famous mm -hmm. examples, who was killed by her demented husband in the west of Ireland in the end of the 19th century because he was convinced that she wasn't his wife, but a fairy woman who had been substituted in her place while his real wife was being held prisoner by the fairies. And so he tried to torment and torture the fairy woman into giving up and going and restoring his real wife, and in doing so uh, killed his real wife. He was certainly demented, mm -hmm. Uh, but he was operating on a very real local belief. And it was all about fairies. Uh, he actually burned her to death um, accidentally. And uh, the British press, the English-speaking Irish press, called it a witch burning, yeah. which is, of course, exactly what it wasn't. But you have here the perfect litmus test to show that when things go wrong, the English the Lowland Scots think of witches, mm. and the Welsh, the Irish, and the Highland Scots think of fairies. Absolutely. The English, uh, yeah, they, their first stop was definitely not fairies. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's terrifying. It's a dreadful, dreadful story. And um, I'm sure, you know, as we know, with, with the whole issue with the belief in changelings as well, it wasn't, it wasn't isolated. But um, so do you have any advice for people that may feel that they are uh, anywhere nearer Leanne and she? <laughs> um, I, I think the best advice is uh, avoid her <laughs> because she haunts dangerous places mm. and she's rather dangerous herself. Uh, I came quite close after that particular night to believing that one of the functions of the tradition of the Lanon Chi was to dissuade arrogant and stupid young men from going out on unknown roads okay. <laughs> at night and risking their lives and uh, putting the neighbourhood to inconvenience looking for their bodies. So uh, I, I was a good deal less cocksure after that but maybe I like to think that she it's, it seems to me anyway that she gave you some gifts because you are a magnificent speaker you're obviously an incredible academic and have 
given us all, you know, shared your gifts with us all. So thank you very much. And maybe we can also thank the fairy realm for <laughs> some of these gifts that she bestowed on you, which some people might see as otherworldly. That's very generous <laughs> of you indeed. Okay, thank you very much, Ronald. Thank, thank you, Jim. Mm-hmm.